The year is 2007, and Banksy's statue, The Drinker, has now been sitting in the back garden of Andy Link's Hackney flat for a good few years. Not hidden or anything, not even covered by some kind of sheet, literally just sat there. In other places, the neighbours might start asking questions, but this is Hackney, and this is Andy Link. No one batted an eyelid. But perhaps this made Andy a bit complacent, because in that year, 2007, Andy returned from a holiday to find his garden empty. The statue had been pinched again. But whoever was responsible this time left a rather significant part behind, the traffic cone that had been on the statue's head. The drinker had lost its crown. So what's going on here? A neighbor who saw a chance to make a quick buck? Some kids messing around? Another bit of art terrorism from one of Andy's rivals? Or maybe, after biding his time, it was Banksy getting his own back. I'm Jake Warren, and from Podomo and Message Heard, this is Who Robs a Banksy? This caper of the kidnapped statue could well have ended when Banksy simply said he didn't want it back. He'd washed his hands of it and hadn't risen to Andy's provocation. Case closed, right? Not quite. The statue disappearing from Andy's garden three years later opens up a whole new can of worms. But as we know, Andy can sometimes be somewhat of an unreliable narrator, especially when it comes to his feud with Banksy. So I've been chatting to his long-term friend Rosalia to get a picture of who might have been the culprit. With Andy, his home was an open house and a lot of people came through the doors and I think at the time he told too many people and that's one of the reasons why it was stolen, I think. A lot of people visited. I don't know how honest I should say. I don't want to be sort of putting my finger on people that we used to hang out with just in case because it could have been people that he knew from Manchester that worked with the Banks' team or other people. The jury's out. So, really anyone could have taken it. Andy wasn't exactly keeping it a secret. I mean, I heard about it from one of his own neighbours at a party. And why shouldn't someone play Andy at his own game and take it for themselves? And if they could get it verified as a genuine Banksy, it would definitely be worth a quid or two, even without the missing cone. But what they hadn't reckoned with is that Andy had a claim over the statue now. With the Banksy thing, yeah, it was a whole new kettle of fish. He decided to take the biggest thing that he just plonked, you know. I mean, it, it, he plonked it, it in the middle of central London, did Banksy. And, you know, anybody could claim that. And he has been clever about it all, really, because he's gone through all the procedure of it, declaring that, you know, he'd found something in the street, in the middle of the street, even though it's 10 foot, got a crime number for it and gone through the whole right route to be able to claim it himself. The original Banksy statue was essentially dumped in central London. And like with all of Banksy's work, he didn't have permission from the council. So when Andy reported it to the police and Banksy didn't claim it back, Andy became its true owner. Or so he claims anyway. 
When it got stolen, I even I, I, not only did I just report it stolen, I went to the Art Antiquities Squad, who are allegedly as corrupt as the art world. I'm assuming the Art Antiquities Squad Andy's talking about is the Art and Antiques Unit of the Metropolitan Police. They specialise in art theft, which in truth comes across as slightly less Avengers-esque than Andy made it sound. So as far as I was concerned, I was, and, and, and as, as far as anybody else is concerned, I'm the legal owner. In terms of the the, Pro- the, the word of the law, right? Yeah, in yeah. the word of the law, I am the, I am the new owner of it because it had been dumped on the street. It wasn't put there legally, it was dumped. So you're almost calling in the ancient, the ancient law of finders keepers. It's not an it's not an ancient law. It's, it is it is a, a statutory law. Really? That if you if somebody loses something, they can always they can always claim it back if they've lost it. Yeah. But he didn't lose it. He abandoned it. You know that is the point. He abandoned this piece. We've heard from Robin Barton a few times throughout the series. As I say, I've been dealing with streetworks for about 15 years. But what I didn't tell you is that his work has, at times, been quite controversial. In the past, he's been responsible for removing Banksy's work from walls at the request of the building's owners. But he's come under fire for this. The point of Banksy's work, the point of street art, is that it exists in a public space. Plenty of people think it should remain exactly where the artist intended it to be. Barton was responsible for the sale of a mural called Slave Labour, which was painted on the side of a Poundland shop. A protest against the slave labour used to make merchandise for the Queen's Golden Jubilee. It was eventually sold to the street artist Ron English for over half a million pounds. English, in turn, promised he was going to whitewash the entire thing. This is a blow to street art, he said. It shouldn't be bought and sold. We're tired of people stealing our stuff off the streets and reselling it. The rule of thumb is the owner of the property that the artwork is attached to is the owner of the artwork. But if it's if it's in public, how does that work then? If no one owns it and it if just... no one owns it and no one can hold any right of ownership, it just stays there in the public domain. It's not a question of finders keepers then? No, it can't be finders keepers. But the wild thing about that is, Finders Keepers is essentially a genuine and actual law here in the UK. Sounds ludicrous, I know, but let me explain. Banksy left his statue unattended in the middle of Soho with absolutely no permission from the council to do so. The key is, because it wasn't left on the side of a building like so many of his other works, Andy was able to take the entire thing without damaging or destroying anyone else's property in the process. The statue was therefore technically abandoned. Legally speaking, that's when the owner knows where they put it, but has no intention of taking it back. It's rubbish dumping, fly tipping, I suppose, but with a valuable piece of art. It becomes a bit more complicated when you take into account the fact that all artists automatically own the copyright to the work they've created throughout their lifetime and up to 70 years after their death. The legal waters of art, I'm finding out, are all a bit murky. But essentially, it seems that Andy taking the left statue from Soho, reporting it as lost and taking it back to his garden all seemed pretty by the book. But none of this really mattered at this point. 
because the fact is, Andy didn't actually have the statue in his possession anymore. It had been taken from his back garden, leaving just the traffic cone behind. And Andy had no idea who had done it, or even where the statue was now. So while he reported it as stolen to the police, that was really all he could do. Andy only had the drinker's traffic cone left as a forlorn reminder of the whole escapade. Life went on. He continued his art collection and curation, even appearing on, in my humble opinion, the criminally underrated Channel 4 art show, Four Rooms. Hi, how are you? I'm good, what's your name? I'm Philip Ignatius Salacious Stein, my friend called me Philly Stein. I'm also known as AK-47, the art terrorist. So what are you here to sell then? And in 2015, he even returned a new version of the statue to the same square where it had once lived. He recreated the original drinker statue with a fresh new cone. But this time, the drinker is sat on top of a toilet and the name on his plinth has been changed to read, maturely, the stinker. Andy has even sprayed his own Art Qaeda motto onto the plinth. Take the piss. Then, in 2019, 12 years after the drinker disappeared from Andy's garden... Somebody just rung me up and said, have you seen what's going up for sale in Sotheby's? And there it was, my drinker, with a shit plastic traffic, just an ordinary traffic cone that absolutely rubbish, stuck on it as an orange, orange one, which completely ruined the look of what it was. The original drinker traffic cone probably was orange at one point, but by the time it had arrived in the square in Soho, it was more of a dirty grey colour. Meanwhile, the drinker newly up for sale in Sotheby's now had a quite clearly fresh-out-the-box bright orange cone on top of his head. Sotheby's, by the way, is both an auction house and a British institution. It's probably the world's biggest broker of fine art. It's truly the home of the art establishment. You'll find it in the upmarket London neighbourhood of Mayfair. You know, the most expensive square on the Monopoly board. So when Andy saw what he legally viewed to be his drinker up for sale there, he wasn't best pleased. The catalogue blurb even described the sculpture as having been mysteriously retrieved from Art Qaeda's lockup in an anonymous heist. And it had a pre-sale estimate of around one million pounds. So I went down to Sotheby's and I just said, I want this piece removing. It's a criminal act to sell this when I'm the, I am the legal owner of it. Five minutes later, some snotty-nosed bird came down and she's like, Oh, Mr. AK-47, we've been expecting you. <laughs> oh, have you? Yeah. Right, and I said, it says, uh, yes, we've, we we know what you're about, all about your your claim. We have all the legal paperwork, including the COA from Banks's people, to say that they, it's a, that this guy is the legal owner. So we're rejecting your claim. But if you want to remove it from sale, what we can tell you is that it will cost you the commission we expect to make. She says it'll probably cost you about two hundred thousand pound if 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 you have it removed. We 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 will be going coming coming to you and we sleep for two hundred thousand pound at least. What did you say to her when she said Fuck that? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> If you were Andy in that moment, you'd probably be thinking one thing, wouldn't you? That Banksy was the one who nicked it back from his garden. 
Banksy had now given the statue a COA, a Certificate of Authentication. But when I asked both Matilda and Robin about this hypothesis, they were both quick to rule Banksy out. However, Robin did say something that made me sit up and take notice. If he truly didn't care that Andy stole the thinker, why did he bother to steal it back? I don't think he did. You don't think he did? No, I think that's the theatre of it. I think it's uh, one of those silly stories that's grown and grown. Possibly someone acting on behalf of Banksy. Pest control are notoriously unpleasant and they would very likely do something like that. I don't think Banksy would waste his time. Someone operating on behalf of Banksy. This is where things get really intriguing. As Andy Link claims, he knows exactly who took the statue. And he points the finger at a man named Steve Lazaridis. How long was it in your garden for before it was stolen back? Oh, well, well, we don't know who stole it, right? But how long was it there before well, we stole it? Well, we do know who stole it. because it's it, Yeah, we do know who stole it. Read Steve Lazaridis' book. What does he say? Well, he says he paid gangsters to go and pick it up. Steve Lazaridis is a photographer and curator. In 1997, he was commissioned to photograph Banksy. And he continued to work with him as his first art dealer and his photographer up until 2008, when they parted ways. Now, the BBC have reported that they no longer speak. In 2014, Steve brought together 70 authenticated Banksy pieces for sale at Sotheby's, with some pieces up for half a million pounds. The pieces were also put up in an exhibition in what was called an unauthorised retrospective at one of Sotheby's galleries in London. And it turns out the current owner putting the drinker up for sale at Sotheby's only acquired the statue in 2014. And they bought it off, yep, you guessed it, the one and only Steve Lazaridis. In a book he published in 2020, Banksy Captured, Lazaridis described how he discovered that the statue was in Andy's garden. And according to Lazaridis, it was nothing to do with Andy telling anyone who'd listened that he had a Banksy in his back garden. No. An associate of Steve's had been over at a local flat and spotted it out a window, just like the person who first told me about the statue. Steve claims his associate took the statue, spoke to Banksy and agreed to store it for him. And after about eight years of keeping it stored, he passed it on to the new owners. And that was the last time he saw the statue. I then went to the press. Funnily enough, I'm very good at getting people involved in my capers. I, was, I went to Moscow for the World Cup and ended up staying with the head of, via my, a friend of mine, I ended up staying with the head of CNN. Andy's presumably talking about Jeff Zucker who was president of CNN between 2013 and 2022. I had some lovely white T-shirts, uh, polo shirts with the Al-Qaeda logo on it and take the piss on the side. The, the head of CNN host, he says, I love that. He says, can you get me one of them? He says, well, look, you can have it. He says, but what I'll tell you is now, you take that T-shirt and you are now a part of Al-Qaeda, you are a sleeper of Al-Qaeda. There may come a day when I will call. So... I got in touch via, via Gilly and I said to him, listen, give him a call. He said, yeah, yeah, I will, I will. And he hadn't. So I said, tell him 
right? All you need to do is tell him he made a promise to me and I'm calling in his membership now. Half an hour later, I get a call from somebody from CNN and it was your CNN Europe. Wow. Okay, well, we'll, we were interested in this story. So as soon as it hit CNN, boom, the story went worldwide. So that was over the weekend. I went and did a live live news bulletin on some... uh, Cable uh, news channel that covers all of Arab nation, Arab countries uh, based in um, Istanbul. So I did a couple of interviews, and I, it was in because it, it, it had been in CNN and all the other papers, only little pieces, but it was enough. We couldn't find evidence of Andy on CNN, although we did find a clip of him talking about the sale on Showcase from TRT, a Turkish public service broadcaster but he certainly managed to get press for it and the attention he was after. The sale was on the Tuesday morning. On the Monday morning, I got this letter through from Sotheby's explaining to me that uh, why they were not going to withdraw it and warning me of substantial... They would be suing me for substantial damages. So anyway, my intentions was going down on the Tuesday morning and and make a a bit of a a thing at the scene, at the uh, sale. I got a phone call on the Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. The sale was used to start at 12. I got a phone call at 10. Oh, hello, Mr. Link. How are you? Yeah, very well. I'm, I'm just phoning to tell you that the Banksy has been withdrawn. But it has nothing to do with your claim. So Andy got what he wanted. The sale never happened. But he didn't have his statue back. On the 17th of November two days before the auction was supposed to happen, Steve Lazaridis made a public Instagram post. It was a photo of the drinker in its original resting place underneath the Westway, a large elevated highway running into the centre of London. In the caption he says, and please excuse the slightly unfamily friendly language and the colloquial grammar, The drinker seems to be getting airplay today. The dickhead who thought he owned it after stealing it and then got terribly upset when it was liberated again. Asshole. Even more hysterical is a bloke who's supposedly anti-establishment, blah, 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 is running to the police because he's a working-class boy and the lawyers want paying to chase a non-starter for him. Therefore, the police should be all over it. Mate, I'd suggest you grow a pair and stop crying to mummy. We contacted Steve multiple times for a comment, but got no response. But to be honest... That post says it all. So Steve is sceptical of Andy and his persona of kicking back against the system. But in his defence, my personal impression from my time with Andy was that he really is anti-establishment to his core. It wasn't inauthentic. Yeah, you know, I was the one who sat it back at class who just, wow, and, and I'm, you know, I've got a sense of humour. And I hate authority. I've always been anti-authoritarianism. I've always, you know, I'm sure if I went, when it, when it put me on the scale, I'd definitely come up with one of these excuses that they give everybody for, for being a fucking twat. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, his childhood and early life did also involve plenty of being told no. Being told what he couldn't do. Being told what he would never amount to. It wasn't until he was a bit older that he had a eureka moment. He was in France with a bunch of mates, helping one of them take a boat down to the Greek islands, as you do. They were out shopping when... Jokingly, I said, oh, can I, can I get that? Can we have that? And she, she got hold of me, and she, this girl, Michelle, she got hold of me and says, Andy, you're a grown man. You can do whatever you want. 
and that to me was a mo that was a changing point in my life when that was said because I'd always been told you can't do that no you, you'll never do that you can't do that you can't do that you're not good enough you're you know I'd always been destroyed like that and when somebody said that to me I, I, I actually I remember at the time I filled I filled up emotionally with tears and, and she was like I said nobody's ever told me that in my life before nobody can stop me doing it if I really want to do it I can do whatever I want and I've proved it not always doing well in some ways, but everything I've done, I've, I've, I've proved to myself I can do it and I'm good enough. This story really moved me and really started to reframe the way I looked at Andy. I think the fact that Andy remembers this moment so vividly means it's probably true that it was a genuine turning point in his life. A day a page was turned and a new chapter began. It seemed that Andy's rebellious nature didn't necessarily come naturally to him. While in school, he might have been a troublemaker. His background still had influence on him. He's always been told what he couldn't do and who he couldn't be. Meanwhile, the more I found out about Banksy, the more I wasn't sure if his public image was matching up with reality. Well, I mean, he's self-serving as far as he's ensured through his career that he's made an awful lot of money whilst appearing not to make any money. I mean, you ask the average person on the street, how does Banksy make them make his money? Or does Banksy make money? And they always say, oh no, he's, he does it for us. It's always the great British public. And uh, not just the British public, global public. Everyone wants to believe that Banksy's this Robin Hood character who's just working for them to enhance their lives. And no one sees the maths behind it. And, you know, you're pretty plugged into this world what is the maths behind it how much do you reckon he has made uh in calculus is he a billionaire nah it's a difficult one I would say can be a billionaire if he wants to be a billionaire and all the while the great uh, the great public think he's a hero working class hero from Bristol (laughs) These days, you could argue Banksy has kind of lost his seditious streak. Why was he allowed to leave the statue in the middle of central London without permission? Because of his name. An unknown street artist would never have been given that same privilege. Could there be a case for Andy making a statement, like Banksy does with his artwork, that everyone should be treated equally, or even by holding the statue to ransom, making Banksy question just how much his work was worth to him. I mean, really, what's so subversive about lining your own pockets and agreeing for your statue to be sold at an auction house for over one million pounds? Especially considering Banksy had been quoted before as saying, for the sake of keeping all street art where it belongs, I'd encourage people to not buy anything by anybody unless it was created for sale in the first place. And it is funny. If you want to know the identity of Banksy, we were told again and again by our guests, all you had to do was Google it. And there it is. Rumours and theories have swelled around for years, some more credible than others. At one point, there was speculation that he was Neil Buchanan, the former presenter on UK children's TV show Art Attack. But after British producer and DJ Goldie accidentally referred to Banksy as Robert on a podcast, the pool of potential identities slimmed down enormously. There are a few Robs in the running. There's a Robin who deals in Banksy's. 
and bizarrely, the musician Rob Del Nadger from the band Massive Attack. He has also been involved in street art under the name Free D, who Banksy has actually cited as one of his influences. And the theory was strengthened when journalist Craig Williams discovered that many of Banksy's murals coincidentally appeared in cities that Massive Attack were playing in on tour. But the most credible theory, and probably the one that would come up if you typed who is Banksy into Google, along with the thousands of others before you, is a street artist from Bristol named Robin Gunningham. But nobody seems to want to burst the bubble, to be the one to just come out and say it and possibly spoil the magic. Gilly used to be Banksy's photographer, but even though they no longer talk, even he wouldn't expose him, on or off mic. Although he did give us a pretty good hint. The media are completely complicit in the idea of having this kind of Robin Hood type figure. Or Robin somebody. But while he came close to confirming what we might already know, he actually explained why he's still reluctant to expose the whole thing. So we've all bought into Santa Claus and people always ask me, going, what's his name? And I'm going, I don't want to spoil it for you. And I don't want to tell, I don't want to tell people either because... I don't know, it's like saying Santa Claus doesn't exist. That's saying it's blah, blah, blah from blah, blah, blah. It's slightly odd. Even saying the name of the person who comes up when you Google feels weird to me. I've bought into the Banksy myth as much as the next person. And spoiling it feels, well, like Gilly said, ruining Christmas. But is that all there is to it? What I've learned so far about the art world is it usually all boils down to one thing. Money, unsurprisingly. And Banksy is worth a hell of a lot of it. And so much of that worth comes down to the fact that he is still anonymous. It's the essence of his shtick, his mystique, and really even his value. The art world establishment has a vested interest in keeping his identity a secret to the masses, because it would cost them otherwise. Remember Robin and his theory about girl with balloon at Sotheby's? I mean, you have to understand with auction houses that they are so opaque and murky. I mean, there's no way of knowing whether anyone's ever spent that kind of money on anything. Well, then the very notion of Banksy agreeing for the drinker to be put up for auction at Sotheby's makes far more sense. It's all a game of smoke and mirrors. The art world, like so many historic institutions, can be boiled down to power dynamics. And there was one part of the discussion between Andy and Banksy that I've been turning over in my head. Andy is often accused of riding on Banksy's coattails, doing a poorly thought-out stunt, and using the Banksy brand to get in the headlines. So while Banksy is able to put out a statue riffing off of, and possibly even ripping off, Rodin, when Andy plays a similar game, his creative ideas are diminished by others, and he's even laughed out the room. And while it can't be proved exactly Banksy's circumstances and background, we do know Andy's. So I can't help but think that if a different person to Andy was doing this, someone embedded in the gentrified art world with connections at the prestigious Sotheby's, maybe even with a posh Southern accent, might there have been a different reaction? Wayne Anthony, co-founder of London Street Art Design magazine, puts it best. He may be sensitive, you know, I mean, he's a former 
porn star, former football hooligan, <laughs> you know, he's from Leeds, you know, so obviously he's he has a working class approach to things, you know, which can at, some, at times be quite tough. That's what he brought. He brought that, you know, no nonsense, I don't really give a shit type, you know, vibe to the world of street art, which is always needed because street art comes from the street. It's an urban pursuit. And although, you know, it kind of got overtaken by a lot of art school kind of students, uh, you know, Andy kind of brought that rawness into it, you know? When I tried to speak to Andy about his own place in the art world and how he construes and views his own work, I got the expected brash response that I've grown used to. We can try and intellectualise it as much as we like, but Andy is well aware of what his own art means to him. It's hard this because I couldn't turn around and say art means to me now, it just means money. Because now I've seen how the art market, how, how it works, it is mostly about money. There's a struggle with art, which there always has been. Well, it's that whole premise, isn't it, that some people say that great artists and great art can't be created without pain and struggle and trauma. That's bollocks, isn't it? We all know that. You just <laughs> got a fucking university, don't you? <laughs> so... Tell me that, say that to Damien Hurst. He didn't go through pain and fucking struggle. The most influential artist upon me that made me realise that conceptual means you have an idea and you just take what is in your head and get some fucking else to make it, which is what I've done with my life all along. And that's when I, so I've realised that's when I realised I am an artist. An artist, you don't have to create that much. As long as you think outside the box, then that's it. Hearing Andy say this got me thinking. In his mind, he gets an idea in his head, and I quote, get some fucker to make it for him. Was that what was going on here? Was I just playing right into Andy's hands and continuing his grand performance art piece? Maybe I was that fucker, making something subconsciously for him now, without even realising. So with all of these contrasting thoughts rattling around in my little brain... I felt I really needed to bring this story to a natural close. And how could I do that? By speaking to Banksy, seeing what he has to say for himself. Without words put into his mouth or supposed interpretation via six degrees of separation, what did he actually think about this all? About the statue he claimed not to care about, attempting to be sold for over a million quid? Well we did have one final lead, something of a Hail Mary. While we hadn't heard anything back from the email we sent, we still had a phone number for Banksy's official PR manager. Me and my producer B were, as ever, extremely optimistic. She's almost certainly going to tell me to fuck off and put the phone down. Yes. Like, all of this to be, I reckon it will last. I'm surprised if it lasted longer than 10 seconds. I mean, I'm, I'd be surprised if she even picks up, so. This really felt like the closest we could get to Banksy himself. The last opportunity to get some sort of comment from Banksy and his team, even if it was to simply turn us down flat. How are you feeling? How am I feeling? What about ringing a random woman that I don't know to ask if I can speak to Banksy, please? Yeah, I'm feeling great. <clears throat> right, ready. From 
Podomo and Message Heard, this has been Who Robs a Banksy? It was hosted by me, Jake Warren, and written and produced by B. Duncan. The music was composed by Tom Biddle, with sound design by Blue Posner and production support from Harry Stott. The sound engineer is Ivan Eastley. The story editor and executive producer for Message Heard is Sandra Ferrari. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. Thank you.